This is Phil Williams from Netflix, and you're listening to EE Times on air. This is your EE Times weekly briefing. Today is Friday, March 29th. Among the top stories this week: Intel's CPU shortage and its impact on AMD. Dylan McGrath lends his perspective. In order to capitalize on this opportunity, AMD must continue to do what it has done. We'll touch on the market pull, or lack thereof, on 5G fixed wireless broadband in a brief conversation with EE Times Editor-in-Chief Brian Santo. The two of them promised 5G in 2018, and darn it, they're gonna deliver. And what they deliver is a joke. Later in the show, Junko Yoshida, Global Editor-in-Chief for Aspen Core Media, asks Rick Merritt of the EE Times Silicon Valley Bureau about the AI silicon landscape and whom he sees in the lead. We have a really good early benchmark out there, and Intel and NVIDIA and Google's TPU folks submitted some results on it. Then we'll hear from Brian and Junko on a story behind a breaking story about top management changes at China's largest semiconductor foundry. Xinhua has apparently handpicked the guy to lead its national DRAM strategy. I'm joined by Dylan McGrath, who reported earlier this week on Intel's CPU shortage. Dylan, welcome to the program. Uh, Can you please explain why the market is suddenly seeing a shortage of Intel CPUs and uh, what it might take for AMD to capitalize on this development? Um, One of the stories that we've been following on eetimes.com this week has been the ongoing Intel PC processor shortage and how this has really opened the door for AMD to make some inroads, take back some market share, and really heat up this old rivalry that has been very one-sided for a long time. Intel has owned well over 80% of this market for a decade or more. AMD has an opportunity now because of this shortage. Intel has been experiencing a PC processor shortage brought about by really its emphasis on its server chips. And, um, you know, let's recall that the PC market has been in decline for a while. Intel has prioritized servers. This has forced many PC OEMs to actually introduce some new models that are based on AMD chips, really giving AMD a real opportunity. In order to capitalize on this opportunity, AMD must continue to do what it has done for the past year, which is to execute. Its Ryzen processors have been very well received. And a big part of Intel's advantage today is its brand recognition. PC buyers, both at the enterprise and consumer level, they know what Intel is, and they understand that the performance advantages that Intel offers are real. This has been somewhat lessened over the past year, and there is an opportunity now for AMD to kind of capture some of this mind share among consumers, again, at both the enterprise and consumer level and to really make this old one-sided rivalry a little bit more of a fair fight, I guess, in terms of market share. So we will see what happens. These uh, processor shortages by Intel are supposed to alleviate beginning in the third quarter of this year, and from then on, it's going to be interesting to see. Many believe that Intel will immediately pick up any share that it lost to AMD, but others are not so certain, and as I've said, This is a real opportunity for AMD that it can capitalize on and use it to further its momentum. Dylan, thank you. We move now to 5G and Brian Santo. Brian, thank you for joining me. 
You wrote in your perspective piece this week that neither AT&T nor Verizon sees a good business case for 5G fixed wireless broadband, yet uh, it seems both companies are moving ahead. Right. So I'm sorry, but we're going to have to back up a little bit. Back up to 2016, when the communications industry is scheduled to deliver the 5G standards by 2020. AT&T and Verizon say, no, 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 that's too late. We need 5G sooner than that. So the industry buckles down and produces the standards at the very end of 2017. Verizon and AT&T promise to roll out 5G in 2018. The whole industry has known all along there probably would be no 5G telephones until 2019 and maybe not until 2020. That means Verizon and AT&T can't roll out 5G phone service, so they start telling everyone the 5G service they're going to start out with is going to be fixed wireless broadband. Huzzah! Then in May, Almost a whole year ago, AT&T CEO Randall Stevenson tells analysts there's no way to make money with fixed wireless broadband. Aww. Verizon forges ahead anyway, and AT&T shrugs and does a little bit of that too, just for form's sake. The two of them promised 5G in 2018, and darn it, they're gonna deliver. And what they deliver is a joke. Verizon, in its rush, deploys equipment it knows doesn't conform to 5G standards. Verizon installs a few hundred 5G nodes in parts of neighborhoods, in just a few cities, and then it stops the rollout, waiting for standards-compliant gear. Analysts just went out to Sacramento to check out Verizon's 5G fixed wireless service there. They found spotty coverage, miserable take rates, and determined that 5G cells cover even fewer homes than were predicted in worst-case projections. The report concludes AT&T and Verizon won't be getting any return on their 5G investment for a long, long time. Oh, but what about all those other use cases? What about supporting autonomous vehicles? Well, the automotive companies are barely interested in 5G. The other was the Internet of Things, which, for the most part, is happily making do with 4G, thank you very much. So, return on investment? AT&T and Verizon don't even have a use case for 5G yet. Now, here's the thing. Verizon and AT&T must have known this all along. They must have. And yet, all along, they've been running around raising alarms about the global 5G race. This was poppycock from the beginning. Verizon and AT&T compete with each other, not with SK Telecom, not with China Telecom, not with any carriers in Europe, with each other, end of story. But what they managed to do with all this alarmist rhetoric is convince the feds and some state governments to block municipalities from charging fair poll attachment fees. And let's make this clear. No matter how many cities charge extortionate rates, cable companies have figured out how to successfully negotiate with those cities. It can be done. So it seems like Verizon and AT&T have figured out one business case for 5G, screwing cities out of the money. This is no way to run a business. Back to you. Now let's turn to an interview recorded earlier this week with Junko and Rick talking about a major piece Rick posted this week on AI Silicon as part of AspenCore Media's special project on artificial intelligence. So we finally launched this big, fat, special project on artificial intelligence this week. 
One of the main stories, of course, is what you wrote about AI silicon. First, please break down the AI chip landscape for us. I wrote a story for our special report on AI last week called AI Sprouts uh, in the Dark, uh-huh. trying to get a handle on this this landscape uh, that one analyst described as, as kind of a barbell, where on one side you've got dozens of, of startups trying to create accelerator chips, and on the other side you've got a handful of the world's largest uh, data centers creating their own in-house architectures, and, and all of it's very secretive. Right. So the key player today is clearly NVIDIA. I, I was walking through the halls trying to get a few questions in with Jan Lacuna of Facebook uh, a few weeks ago, and you know he described NVIDIA as, as a monopoly in this area. Uh, although other folks at Facebook say, you know, we've got so many Xeon servers, racks and racks of them, that we run a lot of these AI jobs on on those as well. So that's kind of where we're at today. Uh, but as one uh, Hewlett-Packard server executive was telling me, they, they track 70 different companies that uh, have silicon for data center training or inference. And, and there's even more folks looking at embedded chips for the edge. Uh, so this is going to change. Yes. In your piece, you cover the issues about benchmarks of AI processors. Do I understand correctly that not many AI chip startups are participating in the benchmarking? And if yes, why do you think that is? Benchmarks is kind of a difficult situation right now. We have a really good early benchmark out there, and Intel and NVIDIA and Google's TPU folks submitted some results on it uh, in the, a couple of months ago. But yeah, others are still really not engaging. They're not ready to run the software, frankly, from what I hear. You know, certainly, they're not optimized uh, on the existing software, which has been running for years on NVIDIA GPUs. So they're the, the newcomers. It's going to take time. Who knows? It could be sometime in 2020 before we see some of these new architectures benchmarked. I would hate to put every story in a horse race context. But Rick, tell us who you see in the lead here and why. So who are the leaders? It's too early to tell. Certainly, uh, NVIDIA has this monopoly now, and uh, Xeon from Intel runs a lot of the jobs as well. But some people say that Intel's Nirvana architecture that it acquired from a startup uh, has the best shot at challenging NVIDIA in training. We'll see. It'll be late this year before any chips are delivered. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, among the many, many startups, uh, GraphCore, Wave Computing, Cerebrus are, are closely watched uh, because they've got some really smart people in their teams, and we know they're working really hard on it and have been for a while. Uh, China, as particularly an inference, has some really good architectures already out there from Gyre Falcon and SenseTime and Horizon Robotics. Right. So they've got an early start in that way, but uh, there's a whole lot of players and a whole lot of change coming, so... Uh, We expect more stories to come. In our final segment, EE Times Taiwan correspondent Alan Patterson collaborated with Junko this week on a report about China's Tsinghua Unigroup, the state-owned holding company that controls most of the nation's semiconductor assets. Tsinghua might be in the process of snatching a co-CEO from China's largest foundry, SMIC. This is a key move in plans to build a domestic DRAM industry. Brian and Junko discuss why this story matters to the electronics industry. SMIC has not yet officially announced changes at the top of their management structure. In fact, 
you wrote that they issued a denial that said both men were still working there. Why did you go ahead with the story? Ah, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked, though. We wrote it because, as you well know, it's in every reporter's DNA to break a story before it's officially announced. (laughs) But seriously, Brian, we'd been hearing rumors for months about the frosty relationship between SMIC's two co-CEOs. We held off on it until we finally found two reliable sources with first-hand knowledge that confirmed that one of the co-CEOs, Hai Zhao, will resign. Of course, he could still change his mind and stay, but we found that acrimony at the top management of China's largest foundry is detrimental to SMIC's overall business and bad for SMIC's customers. What did you find so intriguing about this story? What makes it relevant to EE Times readers? Top management shuffles in any organization always fall into the category of most coveted breaking news in our business. But this one's even more fascinating because we learned that the outgoing co-CEO has already lined up his next job, Tsinhua Unigroup. Tsinhua has apparently handpicked the guy to lead its national DRAM strategy. The future of local DRAM production in China, which still has a long way to go, is a big deal for our readers. You wrote in the story, The movement of top executives can often offer a glimpse into the workings of the companies they head up. But the comings and goings of these particular executives have consequences for the entire Chinese semiconductor market. Explain what those consequences are. For one, the pending resignation of SMIC's co-CEO has exposed the Tsinhua Unigroup's ambitions in memory production. Just so that you know, Tsinhua Unigroup is an opaque, mysterious outfit, but it's highly respected and well-funded. Plus, the company today is the largest chip maker in China and the world's third largest supplier of mobile phone chips. It pulled that off through a series of M&As and company consolidations inside China. Tsinhua Unigroup, by the way, is also SMIC's third largest shareholder. So with a bunch of Chinese initiatives in local memory production more or less floundering, here comes Tsinhua Unigroup with a master plan to consolidate the whole shooting match. If this works, it's game changer. It also makes us wonder, Brian, how much more powerful Tsinhua Unigroup will become. Can it become the Intel of China? Of course, Corsi Yo Chao hasn't left SMIC yet, and we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. But clearly, This management rift at SMIC has briefly lifted the veil on what's brewing inside the Chinese semiconductor industry. That's why we thought this is an important story to tell. This has been your weekly briefing from EE Times and the Aspen Core Global Service. Thanks for listening.